Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. When there are crises, there's a question of leadership. How should a leader go around getting people to come together and get past the difficulties they're, they're currently dealing with? To answer that question, we have David McCourt, founder and chief executive officer of Granahan McCourt Capital, also the chair of National Broadband Ireland, an entrepreneur for years in the technology, media, and telecommunications space, who has been atop many companies, many production outfits, reading Rainbow. You won an Emmy for it. I loved that show when I was a little kid. You're also the author of Total Rethink, Why Entrepreneurs Should Act Like Revolutionaries. When you're leading through a crisis, how do you even begin to think about first steps when messaging your, uh, to your staff, to the people who you are leading? Uh, thanks. Thanks, Lisa. Well, I think the first thing you want to do, Lisa, is make your issue and the people you're leading issue the same. That's the very first thing you want to do. And you want to have empathy. And you want to spend as much time listening as you do talking. And you want to be consistent. And I think those are the things you're seeing. Some people in the business will do very, very well. And some, <clears throat> excuse me, and some not do well at all. And I think on the, on the government side, we're seeing a real inconsistency around those type of leadership qualities, which is contributing to the, uh, the chaos and the problems we're having right now, which are obviously not only uh, uh, affecting us as a society, it affects us. It's just not good business as well. So it's interesting, uh, David, you know, technology, we think about social media, the ways leaders can communicate is so different today. It used to be, you know, you would hear from the White House via some formal press release with the White House stationery. Now it's, it's, it's a tweet. How has technology changed maybe how leaders get their message across uh, to their followers? Well, it's, it's changed everything, right, uh, Paul? I mean, it's, it's, it's changed Overnight, we've all changed the way we do business, but I think, I think the big change is yet to come, and there's a couple things that have to happen. Number one, we have to make sure we get connectivity to everyone, because right now, there's a big urban-rural divide. There's roughly three million people a week that are moving from rural to urban because rural life in America and other parts of the world where I do business, the UK and Ireland, has just been decimated, and we need to make connectivity, a, a human right, like clean water, n not so they can get Netflix, so they can have educational opportunities, healthcare opportunities, jobs, products and services to make their lives better. So that's the big change. Right now, it's Zoom calls and it's, it's you know, being able to use social media to communicate. And when you think of social media, Paul, I think you want to really be thinking of that that is Internet 2.0, right? Internet 1.0 was 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 just moving ones and zeros more efficiently. Internet 2.0 was, was people communicating with machines uh, at, at pace. But Internet 3.0, when machines are communicating with machines at scale, that's going to be a, 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 a total game changer for all businesses. All, all your listeners are going to have to rethink their businesses when that happens. And, of course, to make it fair, we have to make sure we have connectivity to everyone.
And I would argue that a lot of people are already making this shift mentally right now based on what we've experienced with the pandemic, with more people working from home, trying to homeschool or not homeschooling. (laughs) But I'm just wondering, you know, especially uh, as we get the jobs report tomorrow, as a leader, how do you offer reassurance to people that they're not going to become obsolete? They're not going to be earning much, much less. How do you give that kind of confidence and rally support at a time of such massive technological transformation? Well, maybe, maybe that, that might be the wrong question because I don't think we can if we don't make real changes because there's some systemic problems that we're not dealing with. Our education, our training is relatively flat for the last 50 years. If you saw a classroom 50 years ago and you saw a picture of a classroom today, they, they look alike. The types of jobs we need in America are at a, a slope, an upward slope that's steeper than it's ever been. The traditional jobs are at a downward slope that is steeper than we've ever seen. So we can't give people a fake sense of confidence. We we need to get people ready for the jobs of the future, and and we're not really doing that. So so you said that people have already made that the jump. People have made the jump that have a job. So if you have a job, uh, like like the three of us do, then you can make the change. You can adjust your life. You can do Zoom calls. You can do an interview on Bloomberg Radio from I'm in Los Angeles right now and you're in New York. But if you don't have a job after this is over, you're going to be going into a market where 20% of the jobs aren't ever coming back. And the need for training for new jobs has never been so steep. So I think we have to address the systemic issues rapidly um, as opposed to pretending that everything's going to be okay because we have unemployment at the levels of 1929. We have this pandemic that, that you, you know, is, is as fearful as the one of 1918. We have riots that are, that are far more expansive than, than 1968. So we've got a, a lot of things going on that we have to deal with. And the best way to deal with it, I think, is not to give people confidence that it's going to be okay. Give people confidence that we're really going to address the systemic issues that we have. I think that's that's what the game changer is, and I think that's what everybody wants to hear. And by the way, I know this is a business show, so it's good for business. The the it's good for business that we give people their dignity and we give people uh, a sense that we're going to address these systemic employment issues. That's my view, anyway. David McCourt, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and comments here. David McCourt, he is the founder and CEO of Granahan McCourt Capital, also chairman of the National uh, Broadband Ireland. And Lisa, also, he's also the author of Total Rethink, Why Entrepreneurs Should Act Like Revolutionaries. There's certainly need, Lisa. I think we can all agree as we look around what's going on over the last several months and really over the last uh, week and a half as it relates to some of the civil unrest for leadership, both at the national level uh, and at the local level as well. Yeah, this is a scary time. It's a scary time for everyone. And it has brought about uh, a lot of changes rapidly. People saying that it is accelerated, brought forward by years, some of the trends that we had seen, in addition to shattering a lot of people's notions of safety, of healthcare, and and beyond. And, And there's a question of how we get beyond this. Who will bring us there? How do we get the confidence and the support in order to build whatever comes next? And Paul, that's going to be something that we continue to ask throughout the months ahead. 
Boy, airline stocks are just ripping today. America Airlines up almost 25%. United up about 14%. Delta up about 11%. And that's on news that America Airlines says it's going to boost flying in July by about 74% as demand comes back stronger than expected. Mary Schlangenstein, U.S. Airlines reporter for Bloomberg uh, News, joins us. Mary, give us a sense of how what, what really American is saying here about the demand side of their business. Well, they're saying that they've seen demand come back a little bit quicker than they had expected, particularly in domestic markets and particularly in states that have already lifted some of the quarantine rules like Florida and like Texas. They're seeing a lot of people who want to travel to um, to destinations like beaches, amusement <laughs> parks that may be reopening, things like that. And they're also seeing a little bit of improvement in domestic business demand. All right. So this is actually coming off a very difficult period. How much ahead of expectations is the surge in demand that American Airlines is uh, describing here? They didn't uh, really put out a lot of numbers in terms of what they had expected versus what they're seeing. Um, but, you know, they what they're doing is they're going to increase the number of flights on their busiest days next month to 4,000. And that's up from 2,300 in June. So they had been planning clearly, you know, for around that 2300 June level, and now they're all of a sudden they're bumping up to 4,000. Um, and part of the reason for that is they're saying that their load factor, or the percentage of seats filled per plane, climbed to 55% last week, down mm-hmm. from 15% in April, or up from 15% in April. And what's important to note was before COVID, load factors on U.S. airlines were like in the high 80%. So they've fallen a lot. They're still way below where they were a year ago, but they definitely are on the uptick. Are they going to be selling middle seats? Is anybody going to buy a middle seat anymore? You know, um, long term, uh, all the airlines have said they they can't block middle seats long term. Right now, the only airlines that are guaranteeing to block middle seats are Delta and uh, JetBlue. The others are saying, you know, we'll space you out as best we can. Um, or will allow you to move when that's possible so that you're not sitting next to other people. But, yeah, clearly uh, that's going to have to go away because they can't make money by blocking off a third of the seats on their planes. Well, Mary, I'm curious about the liability of airline carriers. If someone does get sick on one of their flights, could they be held liable if they don't provide masks and if they don't require a certain level of air filtration and sanitation? Right. A lot of the airlines, in fact, all the airlines have enacted um, very sophisticated, very up-to-date cleaning processes for their aircraft. And they'll tell you that the filters on their planes are are hospital-quality filters and that the air is recirculated very often. It's not like once a flight that the air recirculates or that it just recirculates air within the cabin. Um, They're doing, you know, electrostatic cleaning um, they're do- taking all kinds of steps. Most of them are, will give you a mask and a little uh, packet of disinfectant when you get on the plane. Um, a, a number of them are requiring uh, masks to board the aircraft. And so I think, you know, as long as they are complying with CDC recommendations and doing everything that they can, I'm, I'm not sure how viable um, a lawsuit would be about them, although I'm not a legal expert. Mary, what's the? You mentioned load factors in the high 80s. It seems like every flight I've been on in the last couple of years has been a hundred percent load factor. What's right. the load factor they need to to kind of break even and start making money? Um, that's the big question that everybody asks: is is what what do you need to to be at break even? Um, you know, the airlines today are all still burning through millions of dollars a day. 
Um, the the government aid they got helped them with some payroll costs. But you know, although you have this bright outlook or brightened outlook on more flights, you know, you, all these airlines are still mm. um, planning to cut jobs. You know, United and American have both said we're going to cut 30% of our management and support staff. Uh, they have tens of thousands of employees who have already taken leaves or early retirement, um, and they are mostly offering a second round now of leaves for employees to take. So although it, it, you know, it looks a little bit brighter, the industry is still hurting a lot, and it's going to be uh, a long-lasting impact. The, the carriers are saying, you know, we know when demand improves and we come out of this, we're just going to be a lot smaller than we were before it happened. I want to talk about the routes that the airlines are willing to fly. How much is this really just focused on domestic flights and how limited are flights to areas that have been harder hit by COVID? And then, of course, there's a question of international travel. How are the airline carriers dealing with that? Right. The airlines have not added a lot of international travel. Um, You know, right after um, the COVID uh, pandemic really started spreading, um, they basically stopped all, all the international flying. I mean, plane, airlines like American was making a handful of flights internationally uh, each week. So it was a very, very small amount. They are adding back um, some international routes now, um, but they're also delaying some international routes. For example, American has added back a few for June, but they've delayed by another month until July or beyond a whole lot more of the international routes that they had, had planned to start. Part of the reason for that is there's confusion about, well, you know, what country has lifted the, the restrictions? What countries are going to cause me to quarantine for 14 days when I get there? You know, what tourist attractions in Europe are open? So there's a lot of confusion. And so people are more hesitant to book internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, domestically, um, you know, the only place that is, uh, got a um, a quarantine requirement when you fly there in places, Hawaii, and that's really uh, dampening down uh, travel to Hawaii. Southwest, for example, has not restarted uh, their uh, primary Hawaii service yet yeah. because of that. Mary Schlegenstein, thank you so much. She covers all things airlines for us at Bloomberg News. Well, it's another difficult jobless claims number today. We're looking at about 40 million people uh, since the beginning of the pandemic have filed jobless claims. The real question is, how are the gig economy uh, employees being counted here, and how are they faring during this economy? For that, we're welcome. Uh, to, we're pleased to have John Chuang, uh, CEO and co-founder of Aquanet, uh, discusses the gig economy. So, John, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of how gig economy employees are faring here in uh, this economic environment? Yeah, gig economy employees um, are not uh, uh, not doing well. Uh, they are a, a very large part of the record numbers of unemployed people uh, uh, that we're having. Um, and more importantly, because they are not really part of the social safety net, um, they do not get They have a lot more difficulty getting an employment, and by large, they do not have sick pay, and they do not have uh, health insurance uh, from their employer. Uh, So they are are definitely hurting more um, than the uh, average employee. Well, so I'm wondering going forward whether we're going to see a sea change in some of the lack of protections that gig workers have based on the fact that the government has had to step in in big in a big way to back up these workers and may push employee, employers to do more. 
I certainly uh, hope so. Right now, there's a great deal of inequality uh, in corporate America. Even in some of the biggest, most richest um, American uh, companies, you have really two ca- classes of employees. One, one regular W-2 employees who, get, who might get great benefits and retirement plans and, and lots of perks. Uh, but then you have the contingent contractors who are, who are combined, you know, of gig, um, gig economy employees as well as temporary contractors, and they uh, do not get benefits. And that, that really needs to change. And it's, it's changing by companies on their own taking some initiatives. Uh, there have been some uh, companies taking steps, uh, a, few, a few ones recently. Um, but it might uh, take government involvement to really change it. You have um, initiatives like AB5 in California, um, where some, um, where the where the California government uh, has basically passed laws making it a lot more difficult to hire people as 1099s or contractors, uh, which will kind of force um, at least uh, basic employment uh, protections uh, on a lot of um, businesses, and 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 I, I think we should all support that because it's only fair for the workers. So, John, I guess, you know, we saw over the last several years, as I think about Uber and uh, Lyft and other gig economy companies, you know, a real sense that, gee, this is a real cool way to think about work. It's flexible. I can work when I want, where I want, kind of set my own hours, be my own boss. There's a a big, big move towards the gig economy. And I always joke that anytime you walk into a Starbucks anywhere around the country, it seems like the entire Starbucks is people with, you know, computers open doing uh, certain gig economy jobs. You think that's going to change at all on the other side of this pandemic? Look, there's a really big opportunity here to make the gig economy great. That sort of flexibility that you're talking about and the easy access to jobs is wonderful. And we should really be proud of, of our economy that has created this and the entrepreneurship that has, uh, has built uh, uh, such flexibility in work. Now, there is a downside, though, because um, as they built these systems, they did very quickly, and they wanted to have the, as much cost advantage as possible. So they decided to pay people as contractors, which means you don't pay employment taxes, and you don't do minimum wage, and you don't overtime law doesn't affect you, and, and you cut out all the social services. Well, this has a really big impact, and it's been magnified by the pandemic. So my hope is what these companies will do, maybe with some prodding from the government, is keep the gig economy and keep all the great benefits, but add the social protections such as minimum wage, unemployment insurance, you know, overtime laws that all companies uh, have, have really provided their workers for the last hundred years. Uh, if, something, if, if companies like McDonald's and Starbucks and Walmart could provide these protections, um, uh, for their employees. I'm sure gig economy companies can do the same. John, I'm sure you've heard this argument. Uh, and just to give some perspective, you co-founded this company in 1986 while you were an undergraduate at Harvard. Uh, it's fascinating to see how much the world has transformed in that time with the focus on the gig economy. What do you say to people who counter your argument about protections and say that this market would not be nearly as dynamic if companies had to pay the kind of overhead required of companies that do have full-time non-gig workers? No, I, I, I disagree with that um, uh, uh, fully. Uh, basically, America wants companies that could provide value to consumers and pay their workers 
a fair wage. Uh, they do not want um, to um, participate in businesses that mistreat their workers. Um, and that's why many American companies that are the most successful have managed to do both. Um, what gig economy companies are saying is that, hey, we can't um, provide great value to customers unless we underpay our workers. And if that is the case, which is not tr- the case, but if that was the case, uh, then there should be no gig economy uh, because you cannot um, essentially provide great services while yeah. mistreating your workers. Americans don't want that. John Chuang, thank you so much for being with us, co-founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of Aquent here in New York, talking about that gig economy, which has very much been in focus. And Paul, when we parse the jobs data tomorrow, one big question mark is the number of people receiving the pandemic unemployment insurance, a separate bucket that covers the gig workers. Well, after the significant sell-off we saw in March in most financial markets, it's been an extraordinary rebound for a lot of the riskiest assets out there. You think about the equity markets up uh, nearly 40% off their lows. Uh, It's also applied to certain extents to the emerging markets. And let's get the latest for all things emerging markets. We turn to Damien Sassauer. He's the chief emerging markets credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Damien, give us a sense of kind of how your markets, the riskier assets classes out there, emerging markets, have performed over the last week or so? Yeah, you know, I mean, they're definitely snapping back. But, you know, I, look, I mean, Paul, we've worked together for four, year now, four years now, you know, so in my prior lifetime, you know, you're aware I ran a large asset manager with a focus on EM, but more importantly, a focus on the frontier markets, right? So when it comes to pitching numerous projects, you know, the folks down at 1225 Connecticut and 719th Street, I'm talking about the World Bank and the IMF now, for funding for development of power deals or agriculture, I mean, I can tell you without fail, multilaterals, including all their Exim banks and the financial institutions that support them, they must manage their own balance sheet risk. And this means managing exposure across countries and sectors, Paul. So, you know, when we talk about debt relief from the G7 and we talk about all the IMF lending facilities that are going on, for the me, the debate isn't about relief. It's about how that relief is delivered. And I've got two words for you here, transparency and control. And I fear when the dust settles, we're going to have little of either to lean on when times get tough. All right. Well, let's talk about the current situation and who needs the debt relief the most. As an investor, if you channel where you were uh, back from 2008 to 2016, where would you be looking for, you know, the best place to basically put your equity in and and say, you deserve some sort of relief and I want to be part of your upside? I mean, is there is there a country that you see as deserving as that of that? I mean, plenty of them. The problem is, the problem is, how do institutions price that risk? Okay, so let me give you an example here. The IMF is preparing a new credit line with Ecuador, but Lenin Moreno, the president, is not going to seek re-election. And if he doesn't, there's a reasonable chance that the new government won't be as pro-reform. So how does the IMF, how does the World Bank price that risk that the next administration might very well reject any, you know, loans they agree to today, right? So this is a country that's going to have as much as $8 billion in, in, uh, an $8 billion budget gap. I mean, they, they once went 180 years without repaying a bond. They're obviously not a good creditor, you know? So, you know, I mean, that's, that's the risk when you deal with, you know, frontier and emerging markets and all that's going on here in the world. And for me, again, it comes down to, you know, what we're seeing from the G7, this is more forbearance than debt reduction, right? It's not real debt relief. I mean, does the G7 expect to realistically get paid back on these loans? Does the IMF? And more importantly, you know, how does the World Bank and, and political risk insurers out there guard against all of these risks? I mean, it's very difficult to price here, Lisa. So what is the market for some of these frontier 
countries, Damien? I mean, it, is it is it is the IMF the backstop? Is it the last lender of last resort, or can some of these folks go to say China and go to their checkbook? Well, you know, it com- what it comes down to, the two words I mentioned previously, transparency and control. So on the China front, it's all about transparency. You know, we need to know what the debt stack looks like for a potential borrower before lending to them. That's just has to happen. And, you know, right now we don't have much of that, right? And then it comes down to control. Even if the loans and the monies do reach, you know, you know that country's shores, you know, who's going to control it? You know, who's going to disperse it? Is it going to go to the places that the IMF and the World Bank and, and, and its lenders want it to go? You know, are we going to trust that the, the, the municipalities, the governments that are in power are going to do that for them as an extension of, of them? You know, the verdict is still out. And, you know, these are the real challenges that go hand in hand with trying to provide debt relief to all of these markets that so desperately need it, Paul. This all sounds pretty bad, and it seems <laughs> like you wouldn't want to invest in developing markets. And yet, if you take a look at developing market currencies, they've been on a tear recently. I mean, they've been gaining uh, quite a bit, and this has to do with the dollar, which has weakened pretty steadily. How much can you just go into a basket of EM currencies here based on a weaker dollar call going forward and nothing else? Oh, I mean, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I'd be taking what the market gives you <laughs> I'm here. Shocked. I mean, I mean, you know me. I'm a risk averse guy. Look, there's no question about it. You know, and I you mean, invested I, in emerging I said markets. So in May and go away, <laughs> and I was wrong. I'm the first one to say that, Lisa. You know, but I'm I'm a prudent man, having worked in these markets and knowing what the real risks are. And you know, what you're seeing in emerging markets, specifically on the equity side, is very much what we're seeing here in U.S. equity, uh, U.S. equities, where it's 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 all at the top. You know, it's it's the it's the Alibabas, it's the ten cents, it's the Taiwan semiconductors that are getting fatter. It's not the smaller commodity producers we might find in many of these countries that make them tick. And so it's not everyone participating. And I think, you know, that we're seeing that here in the U.S., obviously, as well. So I see Brent crude here pushing close to $40, a big rebound. What does that mean? Is that significant enough move or is it oil still low not to be much of a help for some of these uh, exporting uh, emerging market companies? Well, Paul, I mean, you have to look at the average price over a period of time. So when things got really bad for a period there, you know, a lot of people weren't as overly concerned. I mean, I wasn't as overly concerned. People still need to power their, you know, their cars and their plants and everything else that goes hand in hand. So, so you know, what I think, you know, we're, we're taking a step back and now realizing, you know, what are Saudi Arabia and Russia, what is OPEC Plus going to do here? You know, are they going to be successful in pushing these production cuts forward? We know Nigeria and Iraq have, you know, they're on the outs because they've been producing far too much based on what they've agreed to. And so, you know, I do think that, you know, Saudi and Russia have regained a little bit of a toehold here in the market. And I think that should provide some stability and support. And hopefully that's the next leg we see where the commodity producers begin to participate in the recovery. How much does the uh, emerging markets debt investment industry rely on the Fed and the ECB continuing to just absolutely blow away the market with as much cash as they possibly can and absorb any excess government debt? In other words, how much does it rely on a suppression of yields in the developed markets? I mean, that's the great question, right? And I think the market pricing of the financial assets that are investable are very much a function of what we're seeing here with the Fed. But the real economies are just not feeling it yet because there's still a hunger for dollar. There's a dollars, you know, onshore in many of these economies that, you know, they, they, you know they, they, they've gotten hit so very badly by the pandemic. I mean, food prices, energy prices. I mean, and now, you know, federal, you know, the governments are coming after local corporates and households, taxing them more because they can't meet their budget deficit. You know, so it's really becoming very painful. You know, 
It's not about helicopter money in these markets. It's about directing the capital to those that need it most in an efficacy, you know, just in the right way. And, you know, that's where things are getting a bit muddled and that's where the challenges lie. And so, yeah, I mean, sorry to beat a dead, dead horse here, but, you know, that's my focus. <laughs> and, it's, and it's, you know, I'm laser focused on it to, to, to quote John Farrell. <laughs> well, I got to say, I've, I've, I've got to be fascinating. Unfortunately, I would love to speak with you all afternoon. And actually, particularly about the movement that we're seeing in the bond market today, because I think it's fascinating. It is very unusual. It does not cohere with a broader narrative. You see the long bond selling off, even though you don't see inflation expectations picking up. 20 seconds. Any thoughts on that? Are you interested premia. in this too? Term premia. I mean, we need some of it, right? I mean, obviously, I don't know if this is more inflation expectations or growth expectations yet because it's early going. But this is the steepener, that steepening move that a lot of, you know, a lot of Wall Street houses have been calling for. And I expect it to continue at least for a little bit longer. But we're hitting some technical levels, if you ask my man, Ira Jersey. So let's, let's <laughs> keep a lookout. We're hitting technical levels, folks. Samian Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much. I find this so interesting, Paul. I mean, I'm just yep. looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, is it inflation? But you're not seeing it in the break-evens. You're not seeing it in stocks. You're not seeing it in high-yield credit risks priced in by the derivatives. Interesting. I wonder uh, who's selling. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.